0: And enjoy the show. and welcome to season 7 episode 24 of horror hill well we're all making our way through this long slow winter and this week brought us one of the few spots of sunshine in our grim journey valentine's day now i know that valentine's day can be a mixed bag for a lot of people but i never understood that after all what's better than sitting down to a nice candlelit table with your partner and carving into the still beating heart of a freshly trapped cupid (sighs) i guess that some people just don't like tradition in any event we have two stories for you tonight and our first one thonic candles by libra wright has an interesting take on celebrating good old Valentine's Day in a solo capacity. Following that, we'll be going on a voyage across the sea in Her Eyes Were Blue by Adita Dionov. In this story, our young heroine Eleanor is worried about her father, an archeologist who has gone missing in Central America. With some help from the British Museum, Eleanor goes in search of her father, but what she finds is beyond anything she could have expected. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast, bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today and get instant access. Did I mention they're ad-free? Thank you for your support. And now, from author Libra Wright, I give you... Thonic Candles. Valentine's Advent Candleder Burn one a day till Valentine's Day. Discover what it truly means. Don't peek ahead at future labels. Savor all if you are able. The Thonic Candle Company. So read the note enclosed with 31 tiny candles sent in a massive box with no logo. The creators of my candlider preferred to be discreet, but this discreet? People have been raving about Thonic's scented candle collections for five years now. The company offered themed sets for Halloween and Christmas slash Hanukkah slash Kwanzaa slash Solstice, and also New Year, Valentine's Day, Easter, Mother's and Father's Day, even the 4th of July. You had to know where to look, though. Thonic had no website or Facebook page, nor did it post images of its products on Instagram or other picture-based social media. Word of mouth and threads on obscure forums for diehard candle lovers were the only ways to get them. Price was also an obstacle. The smallest set ran north of $200. Fourth of July had three candles, red, white, and blue, to burn on the fourth, fifth, and sixth of that month. Still, two C-notes. For the Valentine's Day advent Candlader, I'd forked over $1,000, 1,000 bucks for treasures that would vanish as soon as I burned them. Why? Obsessives like me knew the answer. We were hungry, ravenous. We would not rest until we found the perfect candles, ones whose aromas would creep into our nostrils and noggins suffusing us with satisfaction. Candles were our windows to the world, for smells lasted far longer in the memory than sights. What smells would this grand collection, Rimshot, entice me with as February unfolded? Inside the much larger package were 31 smaller ones, labeled with numbers on the lids. Since the note had warned me to not look ahead of today's date, I opened the box labeled, One. Pumpkin Spice. Of course, that fan fave should have been included in a Halloween assortment. I cringed. Go to Bath and Body Works or Yankee Candle. Heck, even on Etsy. And you'll know why. As soon as you walk in, or open the artisan's box, as the case may be, you're swamped, engulfed, overpowered by PUMPKIN and SPICE in an all-caps miasma. If you're me, you almost faint. I was loath to sniff its fragrance, fearing nausea. I lifted the votive to my nose. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I stuck the tip of my nose in the votive, suddenly afraid I'd gotten a defective batch. Were all of them odorless? If so, I needed to repackage and return them fast. Burn one a day till Valentine's. I paused, remembering the poem. Operative word, burn. I shrugged and headed to the kitchen, candle in hand. One flick of a butane lighter later? Heaven. Paradise. Bliss. Whatever word you use to describe such a place or state, pumpkin spice evoked it. I now stood in Grandma's kitchen, my mouth watering over the aroma of her best pie. She made it every All Hallows' Eve, as she called October 31st, and brought it to us. Her entry into a shabby nursing home had devastated me. That pie was part of the reason, No longer would she bring a treat sweeter than candy to my house or send it in a care package. Instead, she'd languish in bed, surrounded by worse odors and stale air to entrap them. I sank down at the table, sobbing over buried memories that had resurfaced with a vengeance. My tears threatened to put the candle out, but they sank into the hot wax instead i didn't care i bawled my eyes out at this rate i'd never make it to the end of the month when i finally wiped my eyes and blew my nose so hard that dumbo would think i was his bestie i was surprised to find my treasure spent only a film of pumpkin colored wax remained okay these candles are smaller than i thought The poem said, savor them all. No kidding. Using one more tissue, I composed myself, cleared the votive, and put it in my recycling bag. Fortunately, the next few days and candles brought happy thoughts. Fuji Apple gave me a reminder to pick some up at the store before they ran out. Hot Cider Toddy, in the same vein, prompted me to make some. I enjoyed campfire and s'mores immensely, even though they were rather summer-oriented, but my favorite was fall leaves. Cartoonist Bill Watterson, creator of Calvin and Hobbes, had a word for how they smelled. Snipped. The Thonic Candle, number seven, diffused the essence of this word. Had the company taken actual autumn leaves Pulverized them in a food processor and molded the slurry into the wax? They must have. How else could they have captured such crisp, earthy, vaguely smoky musk? Inhaling it, I was teleported to the chill of my childhood backyard. With each candle burnt, my hunger grew, not only because of the food-based scents, mind you, I found it harder and harder to restrain myself from taking a quick peek at future candles. What would be the harm? However, I supposed unboxing them was like watching a TV show in the old days before binge watching Netflix. You had to tune in next week, or at least the next day. The next week of February heralded the arrival of. damp moss? Overcast day? Toadstools? Were the Chandler's at Thonic playing practical jokes on me after luring me in? Who'd buy these candles, let alone burn them? I would. I'd sniff my $1,000 prize through to the end. Damp moss, self-explanatory, made me a bit queasy, but it didn't seep into every nook and cranny of my house. Overcast day, however, made me want to blow it out and throw it out before it extinguished itself. It smelled like wet air combined with wet dog. As I held my nose shut and prayed it'd burn fast, the taunts of school bullies on a soggy playground haunted me. So did the thought of days getting shorter and darkness coming sooner. Foggy, stinky days... Overcast days, not fit for football or even a brisk walk. Days that made you yearn to hibernate. As for toadstools, it had a fungal pungency, not entirely unpleasant. I kind of liked it. I don't know if it was the candles or my increasingly lethargic state, but I found my mind and senses wandering fresh scenes came upon me unbidden as the flame and the votive flared. I found myself in stubbled farm fields, bare forests, silent and deserted streets. Lost in time and place, I wended my way, wondering why I'd been transported to such solitary vistas. Was it part of what this part of autumn meant, coming to terms with the emptiness after the harvest? The last candle for that week was petrichor, filling my home with the perfume of earth after rain. February 14th dawned. I didn't until the sun had reached its zenith at noon. The next seven selections, as I was soon to discover I didn't peek, were touchy-feely, Not with touchy-feely names like Sweetheart Soap or Cotton Candy Cuddles, however. Sense appropriate for the time of year. One after another, the darkly-hued candles presented themselves as burnt offerings. Angst, despair, lamentation, penitence, rue, sorrow, temptation. I blinked at that last one. Another fluke? My head wanted to think so, but my heart said no such luck.
1: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
0: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. I bought three six-packs of tissue boxes, preparing myself for an ordeal I didn't want to face. I would even buy Walmart's version of Pumpkin Spice if it would spare me from the doldrums. Still, I soldiered on. I cried. I cried some more. I filled my wastebaskets, living room, bathroom, and kitchen to brimming. Here came the flashbacks of too many slights in grade school, too many C's in high school, and too many pills in college. Here came the aftertaste of charcoal in my mouth at the hospital. Here came the disappointed sighs of my parents and that of grandma's last breath. Most of all, here came my failures and mistakes, each one stinging as if I'd made it yesterday. Sense became solves. Sandalwood, cinnabar, black currant, and rose helped me heal. At the end of six days they'd found their ways into my pores and i gladly scrubbed my sins away last came temptation (laughs) why pile more of them on it didn't look shiny or sparkly nothing on the outside made me want to smell what lay beneath what drew me to this candle was its aura if that makes sense and if I'd imbued it with such. I lit it as one part experiment, one part getting my money's worth, and one part I didn't yet fathom. I detected hints of jasmine mixed with salt and cream. My body twitched, guessing their nature. A bridal bouquet after the wedding's over. No sleep for this eternal virgin tonight. Once exhaustion overcame me, a flash of mental sound, a clap of thunder without storms, thrashing in my sheets, sweat on my neck and other places, swirling red-black streams. Should I continue? Whether I liked it or not, I should have no part of it anymore seven more candles, now the temptation had been yielded to. Seven that terrified me. Hair, tears, flesh, blood, guts, bones, marrow. Layer after layer of the candle wax and myself stripped away as the flame consumed them. Hair radiated no ghastly stench, but a whiff of my own oily locks if I hadn't showered. Tears? I'd expended enough of those as of late and drowned myself in the wax's salty ocean essence. The next three made me so hungry for red meat that I chowed down on all I could buy making four grocery runs in seven days. At 3 a.m., steak sandwiches had tremendous appeal. So did scraping my teeth over my own arms, as a matter of fact. I actually gagged myself with a cloth as the next two burned down, afraid to gnaw and afraid to know. The efflux of iron saturated me, By February 20th, I was ready to check myself into a nursing home, shabby or not. The next two were exactly what I expected, and not at all. Pine and velvet. Pine to house my lifeless form, and dusty velvet, or velveteen more likely, to cushion it. Halloween. Cold as steel, a harbinger of winter. Those trick-or-treaters had better bundle up. I dared not burn the last candle or even open the box labeled 31 until evening. Better 11.11pm. I took the votive and my butane lighter upstairs, leaning on the banister with every step, wishing I'd fall. That would end it, end me, and the madness that ate away at my senses. I undressed in considerable pain, not so much taking my clothes off as peeling them off, like strips of... My bones creaked as I squirmed my way into bed, inch by inch. When I lay down, I lit the candle. Printed in capital letters, hand inked in an old English font, was a single word, void. Lamp off, covers up to my chin, eyes closed, mind stilled. Lighted cylinders of wax emitted heat, void emitted cold utter cold kelvin scale glaciation not of the grave but of space of the spaces between the stars where nothing and everything awaited no aroma reached my chill lined nostrils for there was none to be had except Void is all sense and none, amplified and nullified, concentrated and cancelled all at once. As it enshrouded me, I recalled the second line of the poem that had come with the collection, Discover what it truly means. Valentine's Day is void, beneath the candy consumption and creepy cards. It means there is nothing to prove and nothing to fear when the spice of life grows dim and finally fades. Death is thonic, after all. You've been listening to Thonic Candles by Libra Wright. And now, to close out our evening, I present Her Eyes Were Blue. It was a cold autumn night in the streets of London. Twenty-year-old Eleanor stood on the porch and held a cup of tea close to her lips. Another day passed and no news of her father, she thought, and sighed. The moon was shining on the glossy pavement, making the ground look like a glistening river. Eleanor held in her hand the last letter she had received from her exploring father. Ellie, I'm excited to announce that I've discovered the Black River the Mayan civilization worshipped. found beautiful vases and knives from that era, The scriptures on them are of a language I've never seen before. Samuel and I are hard at work. We've dug and sifted through two temples we've found hidden under the heavy moss and shrubs. We've nearly emptied out one temple from all of its content. Can you believe it hasn't been touched for thousands of years? It was such an honor to be the first archaeologist to discover this marvel. The second temple seems to stretch far into depths of the forest and I believe we'll be able to have it fully explored by the end of the month. Samuel has been a great assistant, and he's getting almost to be as good as you. I hope to see you soon. Love, Dad Eleanor hugged the letter. A light breeze hit her skin and made her shiver. Her father left over a year ago to explore Latin America. The British Museum promised a hefty compensation for bringing back artifacts that would draw attention and gather the masses. Eleanor's father, Richard Paisley, was a fifth-generation archaeologist that conducted business with the museum. It began to dawn on her that her time to continue the legacy was approaching. All those years of studying, following her father's footsteps to become an archaeologist and putting aside her personal life, What now? Now that her father hadn't replied in over four months, she began to suspect the worst. Would she take over the estate? Take over the future archaeological projects? Perhaps even take over the business relationship with the museums that hired her father to bring back relics of ancient civilizations? She closed the glass porch door and sat down by the fireplace. Her crystal-blue, gleaming eyes stared at the crackling fire. She could have married. She'd had many contenders for that position. In fact, for many years she clandestinely was romantically involved with her father's apprentice, Samuel Eastoft. She had met him when she was seventeen and he was eighteen. Richard Paisley took Samuel under his wing and trained him to come on expeditions as his assistant. Eleanor was aware that her father saw Samuel as his son, especially since Eleanor was the only heir left after her brother passed from tuberculosis at a young age. It seemed that one tragedy struck the Paisley family after another, as Eleanor's mother lost her mind from her son's death. She was hospitalized for years, unable to accept the fact that her only true heir died. One bright day... After she was discharged from the hospital, she was brought home and ended up shooting herself with Richard's favorite revolver. As a result of Eleanor's difficult past, she suffered from anxiety attacks and felt as if she hadn't slept in months. The absence of her father and Samuel made her anxious mind even more turbulent, and self-medication allowed her to cope with the situation. She got up from the fireplace and walked downstairs to the apothecary. The apothecary was a private room within the Paisley estate that contained plants, concoctions, and powders from all around the world. With each expedition, they brought home herbs that the locals claimed cured illnesses. In Eleanor's spare time, she used herself as a guinea pig to test these remedies. Her favorite was the poppy seed milk mixed with acetylsalicylic acid. She took a sip from the Erlenmeyer glass and felt her muscles relieve their tension. Her hand loosened its grip on the Erlenmeyer and the glass shattered on the marble floor. The shrapnel flew and cut her palm from her thumb all the way down to her wrist. "'Bloody hell!' she shrieked as she stared down at the deep wound." She ran and put her hand under the sink water, letting the cooling sensation of the running water soothe the pain that was already barely noticeable from the drugs she took. Her vision began to get blurry. The poppy seed milk was kicking in. Eleanor applied gauze and neatly tended to her wounds. Even drugged, she knew how to handle injuries. Her legs began to feel wobbly. She leaned against the wall and began walking towards her bedroom. By the time she reached her bedroom, her body crashed on her bed. Thereafter, deep slumber was followed by a dream. In her dream, she was falling, but the fall was slow, and there it was. The black river was at the bottom. She could hear her father's voice echoing Accept it. Accept it. Just as her fall was about to end and her body would submerge into the Black River, Eleanor woke up from a loud knock on her front door. She felt rushed and panicked. She stood up and saw that the gauze on her hand was soaked through with her blood. Her beige sheets had a large blood stain. The knocking continued. She got up and rushed to open the door. The representative of the British Museum was surprised to see Eleanor looking so disheveled. "'Miss Paisley?' Eleanor gestured for the representative to come in. "'Ah, Mr. Dale Bloomsbury. I apologize for my appearance. Have a seat and I'll join you momentarily. Would you like a cup of tea?' Mr. Bloomsbury smiled. "'Miss Paisley, do take your time. I apologize.' "'I just assumed that you'd be up. "'It's quarter past noon. "'As for the tea, tea would be lovely. "'Make it bitter, please.' "'Eleanor looked at the clock on her fireplace mantle "'and suddenly realized she had slept through the whole morning, "'which was very much unlike her. "'In addition, she still found herself disturbed from her dream, "'and Mr. Bloomsbury's unannounced appearance "'added to her sense of confusion.' As a result, she forced a polite smile and excused herself upstairs to fix her appearance. Grabbing the closest dress to her bedside, Eleanor quickly fixed herself up, brushed her hair, and applied a new gauze on her wound. She walked downstairs and heated the kettle in the kitchen. When pouring the tea, she let out a loud hiss. She had forgotten about her wound, and grabbing heavy objects caused a stabbing pain. "'Miss Paisley, are you all right? Mr. Bloomsbury called out from the entertainment room. Eleanor looked at her wound. Again, her gauze was soaked in blood. She raised her voice to be heard all the way across the other room. "'Of course, Mr. Bloomsbury. I'll be there soon.' She brought a tray with two small china teacups, a sugar cube container, and a kettle of black tea with nettle extract. "'So, Mr. Bloomsbury,' What brings you in today? Have you heard from my father?" Mr. Bloomsbury looked at Eleanor and his smile turned to a stone-cold look. Why, no, Miss Paisley, and this is why I'm here. You see, your father had signed a contractual obligation to provide us a letter at least once a month as to his whereabouts and the list of artifacts he's gathered. We stopped receiving correspondence from him around June. We gave your father the benefit of the doubt and waited a few months, but we can no longer wait without an answer. Moreover, we are concerned that none of the other crew members from the expedition wrote any letters to their families. It seems we have lost all communication. I've come to you to discuss the possibility of setting up a voyage to Tulum, which is where he indicated he was in the last letter he wrote." As Eleanor heard Mr. Bloomsbury's words, a feeling of anxiety overwhelmed her. But Eleanor understood that Mr. Bloomsbury's request was not a request at all, but rather a demand. She had no way of getting out of the legal obligations her father had made. She sensed that something bad must have happened, as there was no other plausible explanation. She nodded as a sign that she was listening. He cleared his throat and continued. Your father mentioned in his last letter that they had discovered a huge city that was buried under the thick moss and shrubs. He found some fascinating wall art and an underground tunnel system that stretched as far as the eye could see. There was also a lot of mentioning about a river that was as black as squid ink. Eleanor looked up into Mr. Bloomsbury's deep brown eyes and said... Yes, he called it the Black River. He said the scriptures he tried to decipher stated that it had divine powers. Mr. Bloomsbury's eyes twinkled and he laughed. (laughs) Ah, these savages would believe anything. Maybe while you and I are there, we could take a visit, fix up that little cut of yours. Eleanor blushed and raised her palm to take a closer look at it. She shrugged and laughed. "'I guess we will.' Mr. Bloomsbury took a large slurp from his tea, put his top hat back on, and proceeded to the front door and instructed, "'Meet me tomorrow at the docks at nine in the morning. "'We shall set sail on a packet ship. "'They will drop us off at the port of Cancun, "'and from there we will grab a local fishing boat to the coast of Tulum. "'We have a return ticket for the end of December, "'so we have a month to sort out the whereabouts of your father.' Before Eleanor could say a word, Mr. Bloomsbury was already out the door. Eleanor mumbled under her breath, See you at nine, I guess. Eleanor shut the door and sat down on the couch. She had a lot to digest from this conversation and less than 24 hours to pack all her belongings and set sail to Mexico. Eleanor recalled that her family had many years of friendly relations and mutual understandings with the Bloomsbury family, which had all deteriorated in the recent years. Dale Bloomsbury Sr. had retired, and the young Dale Bloomsbury was aggressive, demanding, and unfriendly. Dale Jr. began to take over the establishment and change the direction of the museum. He was obsessed with erecting his wing, which was dedicated to the Latin American arts. Dale Bloomsbury halted all expeditions to China and Egypt. Dale's obsession with retrieving rare artifacts had cost the Bloomsbury family large financial losses, not to mention the loss of people that never returned from expeditions. Richard Paisley and Samuel Eastoft were just a means to an end, and Eleanor felt her fate would be the same. To prepare for her trip, Eleanor began packing her suitcases after she retrieved her self medications from the apothecary and placed them in a small flask. The rest of the day was spent tidying up the estate documentation in case she did not come back from the voyage. Being the last Paisley, she decided, should her fate be sealed in Mexico, that the estate and all of the assets were to be donated to the local orphanages of London. Nightfall came soon after. She was alone again. Eleanor warmed herself a tub and submerged in the water. She observed her palm and assessed how far it had healed. She was concerned the wound would be exposed during the voyage, putting her at risk of disease. She added rose petals to the water and took a deep breath. The calming smell of roses rocked her body to sleep. She dreamt the same dream again. She was falling. The fall was long and felt like it wouldn't end. Her father's voice echoed again. Accept me, accept me. Her body kept falling and just as she hit the black river, she woke up again. Startled, she looked around the washroom. She got up slowly dried herself up, and went to bed. Morning arrived soon enough, and Eleanor was waiting by the docks, all packed up and ready to go. Ah, Miss Paisley, don't you look lovely compared to yesterday, Mr. Bloomsbury sarcastically stated. Eleanor half-smiled and looked at Mr. Bloomsbury. Good morning to you as well. I hope you slept well. The ship is running a tad late, I believe there were some guests that are boarding it from Newcastle, but it will be here shortly." Mr. Bloomsbury smiled. Eleanor sat down on her suitcases and patiently waited, the chilly morning London air encasing her every breath. Yes, they'll be here shortly. An hour late, the packet ship arrived and began to onboard the passengers. Mr. Bloomsbury nodded and grabbed Eleanor's suitcases. My lady, after you. Eleanor looked up at the large packet ship. Mr. Bloomsbury most certainly had a taste for the finer things in life. Soon enough, they were escorted to their rooms. The voyage shouldn't take longer than 23 days. This is one of the fastest ships there is, Mr. Bloomsbury gloated. Eleanor pretended to be fascinated and soon excused herself to her bedroom. She would attempt to avoid conversations with Mr. Bloomsbury unless necessary. Her goal was to stay professional while still seeking to find out the fate of her father. Mr. Bloomsbury, however, had other things planned. A day before the ship would reach Mexico, he noticed Eleanor standing outside her bedroom door in her nightgown while he was smoking a cigar. He approached her. "'Miss Paisley, are you okay?' She looked at Mr. Bloomsbury and answered quietly, "'I keep having the same dream of the Black River swallowing me. I can hear my father's voice. I think... I think I'm going mad.' Mr. Bloomsbury became distraught at Eleanor's proclamation because she was the key to finding Mr. Paisley and the artifacts, and Mr. Bloomsbury did not need her to lose her sanity. To comfort her, he said, Now, now, Eleanor, I mean, Ms. Paisley, everyone has scary dreams. You're not like your crazy mother, are you? Eleanor felt a nerve strike in her at that point. It seemed to Eleanor that Mr. Bloomsbury did his research on her family, and he knew where she was vulnerable. She took a deep breath, realizing that she shouldn't have told him about the dream. Of course not. It was just a bad dream. Mr. Bloomsbury smiled. I think you should give those pretty blue eyes of yours a rest for tonight. Yes, I think you are right. Eleanor whispered as she walked back into her bedroom and shut the door. In the morning, the ship docked in Cancun and soon enough they connected to the fishing boat that brought them to Tulum. Throughout their journey on the Caribbean Sea, Eleanor recorded the geological structures she saw. The sea was a shining turquoise color. As they were passing a cliff that dropped into the sea, Dale noticed what seemed to be the silhouette of the ship that he had hired for the expedition of Richard Paisley. Can you drop us off right by that boulder area by the cliff? I think I see something there, Mr. Bloomsbury looked at the fisherman. The fisherman stuttered, No, sir, this is a holy site. Do not enter. Closest drop-off is fifteen minutes from there by boat. The fisherman's resistance to do as Mr. Bloomsbury demanded frustrated him a great deal. Listening to the fisherman's comment, Eleanor grabbed her binoculars, her heart skipping a beat. The small ship looked relatively intact. She agreed with Mr. Bloomsbury. Mr. Bloomsbury, we are going to have to head there. Mr. Bloomsbury looked at Eleanor. Yes, we'll do that once we set up base camp. The fisherman dropped Eleanor and Dale on the coast and headed back to his village. They were now alone. Dale dropped the suitcases and started building the tent without assistance. He said, The closest town is ten miles from here. Once we find out the fate of the expedition, we could grab the artifacts and order a fishing boat from there to head back to Cancun. Eleanor nodded and set up her workstation. She grabbed a map, compass, and buckled a revolver to her belt. She began charting out the route they took to reach the campsite with gentle strokes of her pencil. Mr. Bloomsbury approached her table and pointed on the map. That's the last coordinate your father mentioned in his letter. How far off away here are we? Eleanor grabbed a ruler and started calculating. She looked up, shocked. Mr. Bloomsbury, that's not possible. Based on this, the expedition is maybe an hour away from here at maximum. Mr. Bloomsbury looked at Eleanor, puzzled. Huh, interesting. Interesting. Let's begin by exploring the ship we saw. It's probably a 40-minute walk up the coast. Then we'll decide on our next moves. Eleanor nodded and packed a small sachet. They began walking along the coast. The ocean was glistening from the sunlight, a far cry from the dirty rivers of London. It was paradise. Throughout the walk, Mr. Blimsbury kept to himself and through the silence, Eleanor could hear her boots crunching against the sand. "'I see it! There it is!' Mr. Bloomsbury exclaimed. As they approached, they noticed the ship was in superb condition, apart from some small cracks that seemed to be the product of a storm that must have pushed the ship too close to the boulders. They hopped into the ship to search for clues." "'Judging by the amount of dust alone, I can tell nobody was on this ship for a while,' Eleanor said. "'It's just so odd. Look at all the tools, letters, and supplies they left here.' Mr. Bloomsbury approached the table and picked up a few letters. "'These letters are dated from August, and the last correspondence was received in June. "'You are right. This is just odd.' Eleanor grabbed the letter from Mr. Bloomsbury's hands and opened it, reading it out loud. "'Dear Eleanor, I hope this letter finds you well. The expedition is going as planned. Your father decided to split up the team so we could cover more ground and expedite the trip by collecting more artifacts in a two-team effort. I was assigned to be the leader of the second team. "'I miss you, and will be speaking to your father and requesting your hand in marriage soon.' I cannot wait to get back and tell you all about what we saw on this wonderful trip. Love, Samuel Eleanor quickly put the letter in her breast pocket. Mr. Bloomsbury gave her a look. Trouble in paradise, I see. Eleanor ignored him and opened another letter. Dear Eleanor, It's been two weeks since we saw your father and the crew. We kept searching for them, but to no avail. I've tried to reach the closest village to ask for backup and local guides, but the storms created a tough terrain. I promise you I will keep searching for him. I've attached a map of the recent digs we've conducted and our locations, should Mr. Bloomsbury require to send more people to us. Your father is an experienced explorer, and I'm sure he is okay. Please do not worry, my love. I will see you shortly. Samuel Samuel Another letter. Dear Eleanor, I've found your father. He's gone mad. He refuses to let me know where the rest of the crew is located. I've gotten into a heated argument with him. He left the campsite once again and disappeared. I don't know what's gotten into him. The weather is not permitting us to reach the village. We're stuck here and supplies are running low. I've tried to get the ship to work, but it seems the wheel lost capability of steering towards the proper direction. In all my years of operating ships, I've never experienced such a malfunction. I will certainly keep you updated on the status of the ship once I get it up and running." Our expedition went from fifteen people to five. My team of seven were accounted for, with two falling ill and dying. I've buried them and written letters to their families to accept my condolences. I do not know the whereabouts of your father's team, and am very concerned. I will be heading out to search for your father with the remaining crew, and we are going to get off this godforsaken place. Samuel Mr. Bloomsbury scratched his head and said, I'm confused. How is the terrain difficult to navigate to such a point? The weather has been gorgeous since we landed here, and the lines to and from the village seem pretty straightforward. Perhaps your father came down with a fever and temporarily went mad. That would explain the plague that ravaged the crew. This is very confusing. Eleanor put the letters down, clearly distraught, and contradicted Mr. Bloomsbury by saying, A fever does not cause such behavior. Perhaps poison or eating hallucinogenic plants, but my father would know what is edible and what is not. Eleanor and Mr. Bloomsbury looked at each other and got off the ship. "'We need to follow the maps,' Samuel attached, and see if we can find anything that would steer us into finding the crew. "'It just can't be that thirteen people vanished,' Eleanor said thoughtfully. "'Let's use the Black River as our guide to and from the ship.' Mr. Bloomsbury looked up at the sky. Seems the clouds are getting a bit too grey for my liking. Eleanor hesitated. Maybe we should just go back to… Eleanor stopped mid-sentence. She heard a noise, what sounded like a scream, coming from inside the forest. Mr. Bloomsbury looked at Eleanor. What was that? Eleanor pulled out her revolver and entered into the coastal forest. Mr. Bloomsbury followed suit, letting Eleanor take the lead. She knew he was all talk and was a coward for walking behind her. They heard another scream. The scream sounded like a loud screeching noise of such high decibels that Eleanor felt her eardrums vibrate in pain. She started trembling trying to keep the gun steady in her hands. The humidity of the forest increased Eleanor's sweatiness and she felt the salty drops drip down her nose. The bushes across from her were rustling. Her pupils widened as the screaming intensified. Eleanor pointed her gun towards the bushes and screamed, show yourself. The rustling stopped and the forest became eerily quiet and dark as the skies became grey. The ocean breeze that once was so comforting began to add to the discomfort of the storm brewing afar. Mr. Bloomsbury saw the opportunity to act as if he wasn't phased. Well, Miss Paisley, seems that it was perhaps an animal. Now, you were saying let's get back to our base camp? Eleanor lowered her gun, but not her guard. No. I want to know what made that noise. I've never heard an animal make that sort of sound. Mr. Bloomsbury looked at Eleanor. Well, I mean, I think that it's not worth being concerned over. Animals make all sorts of noises I'm sure none of us have heard. You can't possibly tell me that was an animal, Dale, Eleanor hissed. Ms. Paisley, I recommend you remind yourself whom you're talking to. Mr. Bloomsbury said in a condescending tone. Eleanor pushed him aside and started walking deeper into the forest. Mr. Bloomsbury looked around and ran after her. Wait for me! Coward! Eleanor murmured under her breath and wiped her sweaty upper lip as she pulled out her knife and began cutting shrubs and vines that were in her way. She felt the vines scratching her skin and opening small wounds on her arms, The sweat slowly dripped on the cuts and caused a burning sensation. Soon after, the cool wind followed. The storm was coming closer and closer, and nightfall was approaching. Time seemed to warp. She felt like she'd only been in the forest for minutes, and yet it was dark outside. She didn't recall such a radical transition in weather or feeling of loss of time on any of her other expeditions. Something didn't feel right. Eleanor kept forcing her way through the heavy greenery with Mr. Bloomsbury behind her, clearly afraid to stay even an inch away from his only sense of security in this savage forest. "'Miss Paisley, look!' whined Mr. Bloomsbury. Eleanor looked ahead of her and stopped dead in her tracks. It was the river. It was big— Dark and ghoulishly black. She'd never seen anything like it before. Eleanor slowly approached the river and touched the water. Eleanor tried to reclaim her composure without self medication. This is the river Father spoke about in his letters. Perhaps the river looks black because of the silt on the bottom of the riverbed that gives it that illusion. Black lava rocks could do that. She scooped up the water. It was black even in her hands. It was so dark she couldn't even see her palm. Eleanor opened her hand, and the black water leaked down as droplets fell back into the river. Mr. Bloomsbury sat down on a rock. I think we need to turn around. Eleanor looked at Mr. Bloomsbury. We won't make it back to base camp before the storm starts. We need to find shelter. We can sleep on the abandoned ship and use the supplies they left behind. Eleanor looked across the river. She saw the bushes rustling. Mr. Bloomsbury got up from his rock, keeping his eyes on the bushes. Miss Paisley, I believe it's best we leave. Eleanor squinted and noticed a silhouette from behind the bushes. Then, for a mere second, she saw eyes. Eyes she would never forget. Hollow, treacherous eyes as black as the midnight sky. Eleanor ignored Mr. Bloomsbury's plea and darted straight into the river towards the bushes. Show yourself! Eleanor aggressively screamed as her boots touched the river water. Eleanor! Mr. Bloomsbury yelled. The stream was strong, but she knew she was a good swimmer. She tried to center herself and swim towards the bushes. She felt her muscles relax unwillingly. She lost control of her body as the water enveloped her body and she began drowning. Eleanor screamed and tried to keep her head above water. She could hear the echoes of Dale Bloomsbury screaming her name. She heard her heartbeat and her breaths. The river sucked and submerged her head She tried to keep her eyes open underwater, but the darkness of the water wouldn't allow her to distinguish between the surface and the riverbed. She felt her head go into vertigo. She opened her mouth, gasping for air, and lost consciousness. Eleanor felt like she was dreaming. She saw her father, smiling. Accept it. Eleanor woke up, coughing out water. Dale Bloomsbury was on top of her, pressing her chest. Come on, wake up! Eleanor turned to the side. Dale Bloomsbury was livid. What on earth has gotten to your head, Miss Paisley? Eleanor kept coughing, spitting out drops of black water from her lungs and gagging for air. Mr. Bloomsbury continued. You're lucky there was a tree that caught your shirt. You could have been dead. Then how would the museum work then, huh? Have you thought about that? Eleanor regained her breath and looked at Mr. Bloomsbury. Her eyes were teary. I saw him. He was in the river. He spoke to me. Mr. Bloomsbury helped Eleanor sit up and leaned towards her and said, "Miss Paisley, you're losing it. Either by genetics or by current lack of oxygen, you're not making sense. Do you understand that? Do you understand that your reckless behavior will be the end of both of us? Eleanor stared into Mr. Bloomsbury's eyes and thought, This is pointless. She realized she did sound insane. Perhaps he was right. Perhaps she was dreaming. Mr. Bloomsbury pulled her up and leaned her against him as they began to turn around and head back towards the camp. She turned her head around. The bushes began to rustle again across the river. She knew something was following them. Rain began to fall as they approached the outskirts of the forest and thunder clapped in the sky. The beautiful paradise that they saw this morning turned into a hostile and chaotic scenery. Dale held Eleanor by the waist as they stepped onto the ocean sand and ran into the abandoned ship for cover. Eleanor and Mr. Bloomsbury went to the small living room cabin and each laid down on a couch they found. The waves cradled the boat from side to side and rattled as the thunder boomed in the sky. I know I sound insane, Mr. Bloomsbury, but I promise you I am not... This whole situation we are in is not normal, explained Eleanor. Mr. Bloomsbury kept staring at the ceiling and ignored the conversation. Eleanor sighed and silently pulled out her poppy milk flask and took a gulp of it. She turned to face the backside of the couch and fell asleep. The next day, Eleanor woke up feeling exhausted. She looked outside and noticed the paradise scenery. It was quiet and beautiful, as if nothing had happened yesterday. Mr. Bloomsbury wasn't on the couch. He probably woke up earlier than her. She got up and walked towards the mirror. She looked into it and noticed her eyes became darker. She never recalled her eyes looking so dark. Her face looked tired. The cuts on her arms seemed to disappear. She squinted to make sure she wasn't hallucinating. She touched her arm where she felt the burning sensation yesterday. She then turned her attention to her hand, which was injured in London before the trip. Miraculously, the deep wound was no longer there. It was all gone. Confused by what she was seeing in the mirror, Eleanor moved away from it and walked outside the ship. Mr. Bloomsbury was outside, making a campfire on the sand. He said, ''Hope you slept well, Miss Paisley. I've shot down a bird and found some delicious fruits not far from here. Hope you're hungry?'' Miss Paisley sat down and stared at the dead bird that was roasting on the fire. ''Thank you, Mr. Bloomsbury. I certainly am hungry.'' They sat down to eat and talk about the plan for the day. Eleanor thought she discreetly pulled out her flask and began to drink a shot of poppy seed milk to calm down her nerves. But Mr. Bloomsbury noticed she was drinking and asked her, Mind if I have a shot of that bourbon too? Eleanor hesitated and answered, This isn't bourbon, sir. Mr. Bloomsbury taunted, Let me guess, is that your little secret drug? I guess the rumors around London are true. Eleanor ignored the comment. She was concerned that the creature she saw yesterday would be back. Perhaps that creature is what caused the crew to disappear. As they finished eating, Eleanor looked towards the forest. No, it can't be. The bushes were rustling again. Eleanor pulled out her gun. Mr. Bloomsbury got behind the fire and pulled out his gun, too. Eleanor's eyes widened as her father appeared from the bushes, laughing and smiling. Ellie! Eleanor ran towards her father. Dad! They embraced each other. Mr. Bloomsbury ran behind Eleanor. Ah, Mr. Richard Paisley. So nice to see you. Dad, we were looking for you. We thought you were dead. Where's Samuel? Where's everyone? What's going on? Eleanor felt her mouth shooting questions. Mr. Paisley smiled. Oh, everything's fine. They're not that far into the forest at a site we've been sifting through. You know how it is. They'll be here shortly. Eleanor looked at her father. He seemed to have gotten much darker since she last saw him. His eye color seemed to have changed as well. His eyes were dark blue, almost black. Eleanor shrugged it off and invited her father to sit by the fire. Father, tell us, what have you found so far? Why did you stop sending letters to us? Mr. Bloomsbury sat across from Mr. Paisley. Yes, Mr. Paisley, do answer our questions. We've been very concerned. Mr. Paisley replied, Ah, well, every time we wanted to send letters out, the weather would not permit us to walk towards the nearest village courier. And the ship? Well, our ship captain decided to abandon us a couple months ago. He just disappeared. Mr. Paisley coughed and continued. We were digging through some clay pots. The ship captain was a local. We pulled out this gold-encrusted pot. He babbled something and ran away. Haven't seen him since. And Samuel, well, I don't believe Samuel is capable of navigating such a ship. So I decided to continue the archaeological digging until I felt it was exhausted, and then we'd make an attempt to reach the nearest village so they'd send out another ship captain towards the site so we can load all our artifacts and head back to London. I thought it was a brilliant plan." Mr. Paisley, it's come to our attention that according to Samuel, you decided to split the crew into two teams two team members of the Fifteen were dead, and your crew wasn't accounted for in weeks," Mr. Bloomsbury continued. Also, this ship is very simple to navigate. My ten-year-old cousin could steer it in his sleep. I apologize, but your explanations do not make much sense to me personally. Mr. Paisley robotically demanded, Well, I think you'll have to accept my explanation because it is sincere. And Samuel is an idiot. ''We never split the crew into two. Nobody died. Everyone is fine. We'll be here shortly. ''Or we could just come and visit them. It's not that far from here. ''Yes, let's go visit them. They would love to see you.'' Eleanor looked at Mr. Bloomsbury, puzzled. Her father's erratic behavior and Samuel's letters seemed to create more mystery to the whole situation. Mr. Bloomsbury cautiously answered, Mr. Paisley, I think it would be great if we would just sit here and wait for them. You yourself said they'll be here shortly. Mr. Paisley smiled. Yes, yes, they'll be here shortly. Ms. Paisley, do you care to help me pull my satchel out of the ship for a second? Mr. Bloomsbury gave Eleanor a secretive look. Eleanor politely answered, Yes, I'll help you. Excuse me, father. Mr. Paisley kept sitting by the fire and smiling, letting out a cough here and there. He grabbed a mango and bit into it. They climbed into the ship. Mr. Bloomsbury whispered, Your father, I've never recalled him acting this way. Eleanor opened her mouth and was about to say something. Then she heard it. That scream. The same scream she heard yesterday. Mr. Bloomsbury and Eleanor's looks froze, and they ran out of the cabin and kneeled to conceal themselves. Eleanor couldn't believe her eyes. It was her father making those noises. Her father kept coughing and spitting black droplets and screaming. Eleanor rose quickly to run towards her father, but Dale caught her shirt and pulled her down and whispered, no, stay. At that time, Eleanor wanted to embrace her father, but something wasn't right with him, so she panicked. Her father coughed and began to screech, Kree, Bushi, Against all instincts, Eleanor tore away from Dale's grip and ran to her father. Dad! Dad! Her father stopped screeching and smiled again. Yes, dear? Dad, are you feeling good? Eleanor looked at him. Of course I am. Mr. Paisley returned to his calm and happy demeanor. What makes you say I'm not? Dale got up from his hiding spot and approached Eleanor clearly dissatisfied with Eleanor's decision to approach her father. "'You just made all these noises, and that language. What was that?' Eleanor frantically asked. Mr. Paisley looked at his daughter and calmly replied, "'I don't know what you're talking about.' Eleanor looked at Dale. Perhaps she was going insane. "'I thought I heard you say something.' I thought I heard you scream. Mr. Paisley acted calmly. I didn't say anything, dear. You're just going to have to accept it. Nightfall hit again. Miss Paisley lost her sense of time again. She felt confused. It's late. I think we should get some sleep. And maybe pick this up tomorrow. When will the crew be here? Mr. Paisley shrugged. They'll be here shortly. Mr. Bloomsbury became irritated. You've been saying they'll be here shortly for the last couple of hours. Where are they? Mr. Paisley's facial expression changed. He blinked, and his eyes seemed to have a corneal black cover that was visible for a split second. Seeing her father's change of demeanor caused Eleanor to turn stiff. She recognized those eyes from yesterday. Mr. Paisley calmly answered, "'Why don't you come with me, and I'll show you the crew?' Eleanor grabbed Mr. Bloomsbury's hand and held it tightly. "'No, Father, it's fine. We'll wait for them.' Mr. Paisley coughed more black drops out of his mouth. "'Come, I'll show you,' Mr. Paisley started walking towards the forest." Mr. Bloomsbury took a deep breath and followed Mr. Paisley. Eleanor clenched her revolver and followed him. Mr. Bloomsbury, I don't know what's wrong with my father, but this isn't like him. We need to call for backup here. Mr. Bloomsbury pushed Eleanor and hissed at her. Get out of my way. Either you're coming or you can stay here and shut up. I've had enough of this horse crap. Your whole family is fired from our contract once I get to the bottom of this chaos you two have caused. Mr. Paisley kept walking as if he didn't hear the conversation. Eleanor kept her distance and walked behind Mr. Blimsbury. Her father seemed to have learned this forest so well. He walked around it as if he was casually strolling the streets of London. She felt a nervous feeling that the situation was very wrong. They walked for what felt like hours. Time played tricks on you in this forest. What felt like minutes was hours. What felt like hours was minutes. Mr. Paisley brought the duo to a dark part of the forest. Eleanor felt as if she was stepping in sticky mud. She felt her boots step on what appeared to be brittle branches and twigs. Mr. Paisley struck a match and lit what appeared to be ten large cauldrons of oil that shed a bright light upon the place he had brought them. Eleanor looked down and screamed. Those were no branches and no sticky mud. She got lightheaded and fell to the floor. It was blood and bones. Eleanor's hands were covered in blood and maggots. Mr. Bloomsbury began to panic. Richard, what is the meaning of this? Where is everyone? Mr. Paisley laughed. Welcome to Ekbalam. Ekri Eleanor began to count. There were twelve bodies rotting on the floor. Dale, this is the crew. Mr. Bloomsbury looked at the bloodied floor of exposed and rotting corpses. Some were fully decomposed, while others looked fresh. Eleanor got up and started to back away. She felt her body bump into something behind her. She turned around and was met by Samuel staring into her eyes. Hello, Eleanor, Samuel said in a monotone voice. Eleanor was shocked. She started crying. Even Samuel seemed sick with insanity. Her father and her love became her biggest fear. His eyes were black, and his skin was a translucent green color. Samuel? What's going on? Eleanor asked. Samuel grabbed Eleanor by the arm, and she began to struggle to free herself. Samuel! Stop it! Let me go! Mr. Bloomsbury pulled out his gun and shot Samuel. Get away from her! Samuel fell to the ground. Eleanor screamed and got on top of his body. Samuel! Samuel! Samuel's eyes were wide open, and a black corneal shudder covered the whites of his eyes. She'd never seen anything like this before. Samuel! Samuel! Samuel's mouth began to foam black liquid, and he stopped breathing. Eleanor got up and turned around to find her father holding Mr. Bloomsbury's unconscious body. "'Dad, let him go,' Eleanor said quietly. "'Make this madness stop!' Richard Paisley dropped Mr. Bloomsbury's body on the ground. "'Oh, don't worry, sweetie. He'll wake up soon enough. Now, for your own good, I recommend you follow me. Eleanor sneakily loaded her revolver behind her back and started following her father. Her body was trembling in fear as to what her fate would be. That was not her father. He'd never murder his own people. The Mayans believed in a higher power. Thousands of years ago, Beings from another planet came here and gifted them with the Black River. I discovered it, and I was able to read the scriptures. Richard smiled. The divine Black River gave them power, health, and knowledge that was beyond anything that ever existed. To receive its powers, you must accept it. Accept the power of the Black River. Accept it. And I did. I accepted it. Now it is your turn to do the same. Eleanor's dreams all made sense now. She clenched the revolver tightly. Dad, please, let's go home. They reached the Black River. There it was, dark, evil, and eerie. Richard looked at his daughter it wants to meet you. Eleanor grabbed her gun and pointed it towards her father. Before she could do anything, he pushed Eleanor into the river and she fell. She began to scream in horror. The black river started to suck her in as she began to fight to keep her head above the water. Soon, she felt the same sensation of her muscles relaxing against her own will. She heard her father's voice. ACCEPT IT!" Her hand unwillingly let go of the gun, and she felt it drift away. Her head went underwater and she closed her eyes. It was over. There was no point in fighting it. She saw her mother's and brother's faces. She must have been dying as flashbacks of her whole life went past her. She tried to touch their faces, but they disappeared. She felt her soul at ease, and she smiled. There was no more pain, no more anxiety. There was nothing. Her memories were erased, and the force of the river became caressing and gentle. Eleanor's body floated to the top. I accept it, she whispered and closed her eyes. Three months later, a team of explorers sent on behalf of the Bloomsbury estate landed on the coast of where the abandoned ship was found to search for the Dale Bloomsbury, Eleanor Paisley, and missing Paisley expedition crew. When they arrived, they found Eleanor sitting by the ship and smiling. "'Miss Paisley! Oh, thank goodness you're alive!' the explorer exclaimed. "'Where is Mr. Bloomsbury?' Eleanor smiled with her big, black eyes. Oh, he'll be here shortly. You've been listening to Her Eyes Were Blue by Adita Dionov?" Well, everyone, that's all we have for this evening. Thank you for joining us, and I expect to see you all back here next week for more terrifying tales. In the meantime, if you're still hungry for horror, I recommend checking out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a podcast and YouTube channel that offers more scary stories than you can shake a stick at. Have a good week, listeners and stay spooky if you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program please take a moment to stop by our itunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word it makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me if you'd like to hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes Visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free, and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. As for me personally, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, username Viking Guitar, and also on Instagram as Viking Guitar Productions. In particular, if you're looking for someone to provide voice work for your own project, or are in need of audio production of any sort, it would be wonderful to chat. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Nikki McSorley and Eric Peabody. Finalization by Craig Groschek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs.